continue with the ministry of God's Word, turn with me to John in the 13th chapter. Once again, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin with verse 1, though we dealt with that last week, but just as the context, it's the introduction to this section. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice that we have an enduring and abiding word, even the living word of God. Christ revealed to us in scripture, made known by the working of your spirit in our hearts. Father, as we undertake in this portion of our worship service, to exalt your name by humbling ourselves under the word of God preached. Surely, Lord, it is but foolishness were it not for the blessing of your spirit. The world would stand by and mock. But, Lord, we would rejoice that we are a people assembled before our God to hear you proclaim your truth to our hearts. Lord, bless your word as it goes forth by the working of your spirit that you would bless us to hear it, receive it, be strengthened, instructed with it, yea, corrected where that is required as well, that in all these things Christ be magnified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The time that the Lord Jesus spent with his disciples in that final week before his death was critical and would prepare them for what lay ahead. Jesus not only reviewed many of the things that he had taught them in the previous three years, but instructed them in new things as well. That's what we're seeing in this portion that we've come to. Much of this teaching would not make sense to the disciples until after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And even then, they would need to come into the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had promised, to instruct them, to give them understanding. That is true then, it's true now. We need the work of the third person of the Trinity to bring us understanding of the Word of God. Jesus has just reassured his steadfast and abiding love for his own, as we saw last week in verse 1, and that he would love them to the end, to the end of his ministry on the earth, but even to the end of their lives, even to the end of the great day of judgment. 
love will be the thread that flows through all of this section. It's, it's one of the hallmarks of John's gospel as well as John's epistle. Jesus immediately demonstrates then what sacrificial servant love looks like. The focus throughout is the love of God for his people rather than our love for him. What follows is a demonstration is a demonstration of what God can do for his people, his children indeed, what he has done for unworthy sinners in, by, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world to fulfill God's plan, namely paying the penalty for our sin, saving a people to himself, and restoring all creation to God's good order, beginning with man and extending throughout the whole of the cosmos. We should never, ever come to the point in our life where we cease to be amazed at the love of God revealed to us in Christ Jesus. That the Son of God came from heaven, and not as a king arrayed in splendor, which would have been his right, but he came as a servant. As we're seeing in Isaiah, Jehovah's servant, the the long-expected, the one promised, he came as a servant. He came even as he declared not to be served, but to serve. It's amazing that God so loved those who were so unlovely and unworthy. We should never cease to be amazed. God, who is altogether righteous, holy, just, and good, this God came to redeem his creatures who are unrighteous, unholy, unjust, and evil. Well, do we sing with amazed wonder, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love. The King of heaven became servant of all. And so we seek to undertake the verses that we've read. Um, We use four main headings, girded for service, the need for cleansing, clean on the inside, dirty on the outside, and then finally not all are clean. We begin with girded for service. Before we get into the heart of this text, it's important for us to understand the layout in the upper room. As you read the different gospel accounts, you get a sense, but also from writings from the time, what the arrangement would have been like in a typical supper in a Hebrew home, and more particularly at the time of the Passover. Those Passover gatherings were typically targeted to be around 10 people. You remember when uh, God gave uh, the instructions for the Passover meal back in Exodus uh, that they were to gather with neighbors so there was enough people to eat one lamb. You know, one man might have a family sufficient that his family would eat the whole of a lamb. And so those gatherings tended to be around 10 people. Here we know there's 12. So I want you to picture a low table. We're so custom. Even Leonardo da Vinci got it wrong in his picture of the Last Supper. Uh, but a low table at which people reclined on pillows around the edge of it. A table uh, laid out in the arrangement of the pillows around it uh, would be much like a U, or you might think of a horseshoe. And the diners would recline on their left side. They would be laying on their left side so that their right hand, which was the appropriate hand to eat with, and the culture is still true in the Middle East today, they would have that hand free. And so the arrangement then, this you, I'm directing it from you, so you've got to 
the tops of the U, which is out here, coming around with the bottom here, Jesus would have been on this side in the second place. And we understand from that that John was to his right, laying on his left. We're told that during the supper he laid back on Jesus' bosom. You can see how that would happen. Judas was then to Jesus' left, the place of honor, the highest place in the room. And you remember that there was the debate, who was the greatest? And we see who ended up in the place of honor was Judas. Judas, very much about this world and materialistic things and his own advancement, uh, took the place of honor. Peter, on the other hand, uh, impetuous as he was, hearing Jesus said that he who would be the greatest should be the servant of all, Peter went to the lowest position, which would be on this end of the table. And thus, he would have been lying directly across from John and, of course, Christ. And so when Jesus said, there's one here who will betray me, we're told in the course of the supper that Peter motions to John, ask him, who is it? And it had been very easy because they're directly across from one another at the table. And so the other ten would have been distributed around the table according to their affinity, perhaps brothers next to brother. Obviously, James is not next to his youngest brother, John. But they would have been in an arrangement around there. So we need to keep this arrangement in mind. You know, I've set up some of the events that were, are recorded and how we kind of piece together who was where. But we'll keep that in mind as we move through this material in the upper room as John sets it forth in John 13 through 17. Verse 2 should be understood as during the supper. The King James, the New King James, wrongly say the supper being ended. The the verb that is used there, that's that's a poor translation, and it gives the wrong idea. It only makes sense that the feet of the guests would have been washed before the meal. That's the proper conduct. That's the way things were done. It was the custom, and of course the custom, you've heard me say this before, uh, that the lowest servant... The person at the bottom of the pecking order, the least of the slaves, was the one that was tasked with the nasty task of washing dirty feet. Remember, the disciples have been arguing about who's greatest. Judas likely having been the one who started that argument. Now, in this upper room, there are two things in place that could not have been more remote from one another. And John writes about it, the supper having been ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and then Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God. You see how John has set up a tremendous contrast, these two ducks to position before them, Satan, he's put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, Judas having realized that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that he hoped for, that Jesus is not going to have a great kingdom in which Judas can come along in on the shirt tails and find a position of prestige and wealth. Judas had betrayed the Lord. We understand from the text that the act was inspired. Satan, though uh, Judas, was willing and gave himself to it. Judas was also motivated by pride, which is what the devil's downfall was. The arrangements have been made. The the deal has been struck for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. It is exchanged hand. Judas has the money in his pocket or in his pouch. 
here's a man in turmoil. Stark contrast to what it was in Judas' heart, John tells us that in Jesus' heart was a knowledge that he had come from the Father, that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he, having come from God, was going to God. Uh, Jesus has made this pronouncement again and again, that he's been sent from the Father, that he's come down from above, and we're told and reminded of that. That's what the, the religious leaders were so upset about, that they said it was blasphemy, because they looked, they see but a man. But we know that it was God, the Son, in his fullness, and yet a veil was over his deity even so effectively by his humanity. Jesus is inspired then by the love of the Father that sent him into the world. Remember again, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. But Jesus also loved the world. The Holy Spirit loved the world. These, These three in our one God are in complete concert and harmony with all things. When we consider Jesus the man, the God man before these men, he is equal with God. That's so what uh, Paul makes so clear in Philippians 2. And, of course, we see elsewhere. Jesus, though equal with God, the king of glory, what does he do? He took the form of a slave. That's actually in Philippians 2. Um, New King James says bondservant. He took the form of a bondservant. The word is doulos, which is a slave. And he came in the likeness of men to save men from wrath, what Paul writes there. So what do we see here in these two verses? There in the room, side by side, these two men, night and day, darkness and light, hatred and love, pride and humility. So the men have come in off the dusty streets of Jerusalem, finding their place as they've reclined at the table with dirty feet. No one has offered to wash anyone's feet. They're all concerned about who's the greatest, and no one is willing to stoop to do the lowest of task, and yet their feet are all dirty. Now, step back for a moment and think about what it is that makes a man worthy of being heard. Many preachers, and even some great preachers, uh, when men would hear them because of the prestige that surrounds them or perhaps the eloquence of such a man. But what makes a preacher so dear to his own people that they want to hear him? Well, why are you here? Why have you come? Well, certainly it's because, you know, it's a responsibility to keep the Lord's Day, to gather with the saints for worship, especially to hear the Word of God. We come some sense out of obedience and a desire because of the work that God has done within our hearts. But how much more so than when we know the preacher loves us? When we know that our preacher loves us, when the preacher is also a pastor, a shepherd who cares for the people, the people want to hear him all the more. And an elder in one of my previous congregations was uh, speaking with me about that. He says, if your people love you and they know that you love them, he said, you can hold up an orange and tell them it's an apple. And they'll want, you to, they'll want to believe you because they know that you love them. And, of course, you know, such love would not lead to such deception. But it underscores the point that when, we're, when we love the man, My friends, in this context, in this upper room, Jesus is about to preach one of the most important sermons, perhaps the most important sermon that his disciples will hear from him as he prepares them for what's about to unfold over the next few hours, but also over the next days, even to the point of his ascension. He will tell them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
and they're going to see him go. But he will have already told them. Jesus is telling them marvelous things, amazing things. But think about how these men would want to hear him because they know that he loves them. And so it was. Jesus arose from the table. Their teacher, their master, their rabbi, the one who they looked to, the one who they had followed. Now, the room would have been made ready as the house was borrowed from someone, probably John Mark's parents. The room would have been better. Water and and a basin were supplied. They would have been by the door to be used. A man could have come in and washed his own feet. But no one's washed their feet. Just think about the 12 coming in. Did they miss the basin and the pitcher of water? Isn't it not likely that they maybe had to step around it? They've totally missed it. And then suddenly they see Jesus take off his outer garment and gird himself with a towel and make his way to wash their feet. For Verse 4, he rose from the supper, lay aside his garment, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel which, with which he was girded. Their master does the lowest task that could be done in that room that hour. He comes to each of them to wash their feet. So we consider this some application. There's no greater contrast than the way of Satan and the way of the Savior. There's no greater contrast between these than between these two. The world operates in the way of Satan. Paul calls him, that is Satan, the God of this world. Second Corinthians four four. Satan is the father of lies. He's only to come to kill and to steal and to destroy. It is no wonder that people without Christ live as we see them live, for Satan is their God. It's who they follow and worship, although he deceives them, dupes them. They think they're serving themselves. So many of them go in their own way. It's no wonder that the people without Christ live then as we see them. It is Jesus who offers the sons and daughters of Adam a more excellent way. It is he who has come into the world with the words of life. It is he who has come with light. But he has come with humility. He hasn't come making great demands. His command is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Submit yourself unto God. Jesus sets the example here in the events that follow. But more importantly, Jesus goes from here to the cross in order to deliver sinners out from the bondage of sin, to rescue them out of Satan's kingdom and bring them into the kingdom of God. He came came into the world to break the yoke of sin. And he says, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and light. He has come to destroy sin and pride. John makes it clear in verse 3 that Jesus knew that he had this authority that had been given to him from the Father, And he's about to return to God. Think about that. He's come from heaven. He's God in the flesh. He's on earth. He knows he's about to go back to God, back to the throne, back to the right hand of the Father. And yet, he stoops to wash feet. But my friends, that's just a foreshadowing. That's just a picture of what Christ is about to do. He is about to go to the cross. And he who knew no sin is going to become sin that he might deliver a people in the bondage of sin and to the glorious life and liberty that is found in Christ. 
It's so remarkable that Jesus does not stand up. He doesn't stand up at the table and say, what is wrong with you men? One of you, humble yourself and wash the feet of your brothers. No. He who had the loftiest position in the room, who had all the entitlements of glory, did not demand service from others. He went and he served them. My friends, if we are in union with Jesus by faith, then we too are going to God. Think about that. By faith, you're united to Christ. That where he is, we shall be also. He's gone to prepare a place for us, and he will come again to gather us there. That's our status in the world. That's who we are. That is a reality that no man can take away from us. No government, no edict, no demand, no force. That is a position of security. But that does not entitle us to make demands of others. No, we need to learn from Jesus that we're called to be servants of others. We're to serve others with gladness. Having considered this, let's consider the need for cleansing. What were the others thinking as they saw their master stand up and gird himself? They were thinking something. They were thinking a lot of things. Was there a sense of shame? Of guilt, did Jesus get up? I wonder what he's going to do. And he goes to the basin. He takes off his outer garment. He takes up the towel and he girds himself with it, pours water into the basin. You can imagine the thoughts of the 12 were running in every direction. Peter, we know something, what he's thinking, because when he comes to Peter, as Jesus approaches Peter, Peter objects, Lord, are you about to wash my feet? You are not about to wash my feet, are you? That's how I translate it. But literally, the way the word order is, is very abrupt. You, my feet to wash? That's literally what Peter said. He's, he's alarmed. You? He considers who it is. You and my feet to wash? This is unthinkable to Peter. Peter sees what's happening, and Peter is alarmed. Peter's the one who's confessed. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Holy Spirit has opened his eyes to understand that. And then immediately after that, we know Peter puts his foot in his mouth. Well, there's something of that here in this text as well. But God has revealed to Peter who this is. You? My feet to wash? Well, then what follows in the bulk of what we're considering today is a conversation that is instructive for those present as well as for the church down through the ages. Look at verse 7. Jesus answered and he said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now. So Jesus is saying, you're, you're baffled, Peter. And, and that's right. You, you cannot understand it now at this point. But he says, but you will know after this. Indeed, after Christ's work completed on the cross, Peter will understand it. What was Jesus saying? That after the resurrection, this act of humility and service of taking the lowest place, doing the task of the, the slave of a household, Jesus was showing what he's about to go out and do. It's a foreshadowing. This foot washing prefigures or pictures Jesus' work on the cross. What's dirtier than dirty feet? Need you far more dirty? The heart of a sinner. We are foul. We are festering. We are corrupt. And Jesus was willing to come and to do this for us. Just a quick application. There are times when our Lord has appointed things for us that we do not understand in the moment. I 
I've had conversations with some of you about that. Things that are unfolding. Just like these men are confused. Peter's confused. We don't understand them in the moment. And, and Jesus' response to us is, you don't understand it right now, but you will afterwards. That afterwards may actually be in heaven. And we finally understand the design of God. And what's given to us is those who are redeemed is to yield. And even as we sing, whate'er my God ordains is right. Wait on the Lord. To quote one of our elders, who I know he's quoting someone else, the truth is nothing that God appoints is unnecessary, and nothing that he withholds is needed. Peter's self-manufactured humility was not willing to let the master proceed. Peter has gone to the lowest position. You know, he's heard about you know, Jesus' rebuke about them debating about who's the greatest, so he says, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the bottom spot. And now Jesus comes to wash his feet, and he's just like, no. This, there's no way that this can happen. And what, we do, what do we see Peter do? Even after he's given the confession that the Holy Spirit is helping to make, Peter rebukes his master once more. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Wow. But really, other than at times when God is at work in our life, we go, no, not having it. Don't want this. And what does the Lord do? Sometimes gently, often gently, mercifully subdues our rebellious heart. And other times, it's, it's more abrupt. It's more abrupt. But it's always for our good. Peter's objected. And a lesson along the way. If we find ourselves arguing with the word of God, it's not an argument we're going to win. We only get ourselves into more trouble. We're called to yield and submit to God's word. Well, Jesus responds quickly, and he points out the necessity to Jesus, uh, uh, points out to Peter the necessity. He must be washed, because if he's not washed, he can have no part in him. And and here's Jesus is speaking of the the picture of what he's doing. It's not that Jesus saying, well, if I don't wash your feet, you can't be my disciple. If I don't wash your feet, you can't go to heaven. If I don't wash your feet, there's no possibility of your salvation. The foot washing is a picture of the work of Christ on the cross shed his blood, to cleanse us from our sin. And that's what Jesus' point to him is. He says, if I do not wash you, then you have no part in me. This word part, it means a portion of the whole. Plainly, plainly stated, by refusing to be washed by Jesus, will make it certain to Peter, and therefore to us, that you have no place in heaven. If Jesus does not wash you, if you are not cleansed by his blood... You have no part in heaven, no matter how much you might deceive yourself or uh, what other uh, doctrines of men you may follow. If Christ has not washed you, you have no part in him. You have no hope of heaven. He came into the world to shed his blood to save sinners. To refuse him, to reject that, is to place yourself in a category without hope, without salvation. No heaven, no glory, only the wrath that is to come. Jesus will not be preparing a place for you. There will be no mansion in glory. When he comes again, he will not be gathering you to be with him where he is forevermore. What Jesus is doing by washing his feet is clearly a picture of the work of the cross. This task of a slave, Jesus undertakes 
because the task he's about to go and perform as the Lamb of God, as the the partial victim, he is about to go and lay down his life for his people. He who is sinless will become sin. He who is righteous, holy, and just, and has right standing before God, he will take on himself the sins of his people and suffer the wrath of God that we deserve. That's a servant. He serves to the uttermost. And thus Paul writes in Philippians 2 that he took on the form of a slave. We see that pictured here. So Jesus came into this world for this purpose. All the children of Adam, which would mean all of humanity with the exception of one, because Christ is God, he's come from God, his humanity was, he's God incarnate conceived by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He had no earthly father. There's no sin. There's no sin nature. He's unique. There is none other like him. But for all others, and that means all others, that means every one of us, we are sinners. We are the children of Adam. We are unclean. Scripture is rather specific and comprehensive when it speaks of this. Some of you remember this when we were in Romans, the third chapter. This is what we are. And these It's these types of people, these in this condition that Jesus has come to save. What is our condition? There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. My friends, apart from Christ, this is our condition. This is the nature of a sinner. This is the kind of people that Jesus came into the world to save. Unwashed unclean, unrighteous, unholy, evil people. And Jesus stooped to save such as these. He came to serve. He came to give his life a ransom for many. This has been the hallmark of Jesus' ministry from the beginning even to this very moment. He served others for three years. All of that service was pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice on the cross, the healing of the sick, the casting out of the demons, other miracles he did, they were all acts of service pointing to the greatest service of all. The hallmark of Jesus' ministry is the work on the cross. Let's think about something with me. Philippians 2, he humbled himself, took the form of a servant. That language familiar to us, I've referred to it often in recent weeks. Just think of how it parallels what's here and what John writes. He arose from his seat. That's the first thing John said he did. Just as he arose from his throne in heaven to come to earth. He laid aside his garments just as he set aside his glory as the only begotten of son. Quoting Paul, being in the form of God, yet he made himself of no reputation. Is that not what we see in the upper room? He took a towel and girded himself. Again, Paul in Philippians 2, taking the form of a slave. Jesus poured out the water to remove the filth from his, the feet of his disciples, 
very soon he will shed, he will pour out his precious blood, will spill out, pour it out to remove the filth of sin from those whom the Father has given to him. You see, the same order as Paul takes. The steps of humiliation, I think our Westminster Catechism speaks to them. When Jesus had completed the act of washing, he took his garment upon himself once more and took his seat at the head of the table. A picture of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension back to the right of the hand of the Father, being seated on the throne of glory, which is rightfully his. He came from God, and he's going to God. Isn't that marvelous? We see such a picture in this simple act of service, a common act, an act that happened in many homes all around the city, throughout the whole region, need that part of the world. Jesus picturing the work that he undertakes as a redeemer. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews said. When he by himself had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. My friends, if we choose to follow Jesus without a cross and all the humiliation that it accompanies, then we reject the only Jesus who's able to save us. There's a neat Richard Niebuhr quote, speaking of liberal so-called Christianity, a cross, a Christ without a cross. That's what many would have. But my friends, a Christ without a cross cannot save you. The cross was necessary. We can understand how Peter was confused and, and, and might say, well meant, but there's no longer an excuse now. Jesus has completed his work. It is accomplished. And how he accomplished it is well documented in the scripture. The doctrines of the gospel are very clear. The false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church have left many thinking that Peter will meet them at heaven's gate. They talk about, yeah, when I get there, all kinds of people have all kinds of conversations. I'm going to have this conversation with Peter. Very uh, presumptuous, one would think. So imagine they're right. They get to the gate and they meet Peter. And he says, well, how well have you done? He says, well, pretty good. I've been pretty good. I've done more good than bad. Well, if Peter is the one there, he will be quick to correct them of their error. Thinking about what we see right here and what Peter knows. Peter would tell them what Jesus told him. Unless you've been washed by me, you have no part in me. That's the truth of the gospel. We must be washed by the blood of Christ or there is no salvation. We must be washed in order to be clean. My friends, our righteousness is filthy rags. There's no place for filth in heaven. There's no place for rags in heaven. Everything there will be lovely and holy and God will not allow an unwashed sinner into the pristine place of his abode. We must come to Jesus for cleansing. His blood alone can wash away our sins. But thirdly, we see the principle of clean on the inside, but dirty on the outside. Peter trusts his master, and he quickly yields. Peter wants everything to be washed. Verse 9, Simon Peter, he hears this, and he says to Jesus, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. There's that impetuosity of Peter. Okay, I was wrong about that. Lord, wash all of it. I want all of it to be washed. Jesus answers Peter in verse 10. Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. 
and you are clean, but not all of you. So here's the principle. If in that day you had been invited to someone's home as a guest, you would have cleaned yourself in your own home. You would have bathed, bowl, basin, you know, washcloth, towel, whatever they had used. You would have washed yourself before going to be a guest in another person's house. But having made that journey to their house, your feet would have gotten dirty on the way. It was inevitable. It was, there was no other way it could be, but they would have arrived with dirty feet. Sometimes in some cultures, people arrive at the door, they take their shoes off because we wear shoes today. And we're recognizing that in our traveling, we might show up with dirt on our feet. Well, Jesus' words are instructive for all those who have come to him by faith. All of those who have come to Christ have received the once-for-all washing of his blood. They're washed and cleansed in their whole being. They are clean in the sight of God. There's no changing that. Thus, the picture of those who have bathed themselves are clean. But the washing of the feet would be necessary. So, what's the principle here? Spiritually, we're clean in Jesus because he has redeemed us. But Jesus says he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Here's the principle. Even so, we live in a dirty world and we are affected by sin every day. Do you not know that, believer? Are you mindful of that? How we are affected by sin in every way, every day. We hear corrupt philosophies, worldviews, competing, competing, comp- competing agendas with the true agenda of the living God. You know, we prayed earlier, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's, that's a real prayer. It's one we need answered because we're surrounded by evil. And so we sin in the course of our day. And we are soiled by sin. That is true for us all. Our minds are affected by what we see and what we hear. Our affections become divided. Confusion besets us. There are times when we falter and even times when we fall. All the while, though, our standing before God is in Christ Jesus. We are clean. His righteousness speaks on our behalf. We are justified because of the completed work of Christ. But it's necessary to use the image here, to have our feet washed. We need to go to the Lord daily, even in the course of the day, confessing our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. We need to come confessing our faults. We need to come seeking his grace and mercy once anew. Thus it is week by week we confess our sin. We hear the law. Perhaps things have gotten past us. Perhaps we've just been careless all week long. We come into the presence of holy God. We need our feet washed. We need to confess our sins. We need to once more look to Christ and depend fully upon him, not our own righteousness. Our beloved stands or seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Sisters and brothers, the application is keep short accounts. In the culture of that day, you would have traveled to someone's house. Maybe you left one house, went four blocks over to another house. If the host was a good host, your feet would have been washed because they would have got dirty along the way. It gives the idea of the frequency with this picture of foot washing that we frequently need to go to the Lord. When you sin, be quick to confess your sin. As soon as you're mindful, this is the Holy Spirit convicts you. Maybe you're confronted by a sister or a brother. Confess your sin 
if it's against them, to them, but especially to the Father. Be quick to confess and ask the Lord to watch you. Go in humility and with godly sorrow, not with presumption, but go with a confidence. Using the illustration here, Jesus is ready to wash our feet. He's washed us. He shed his blood. It's sufficient. It still speaks for us. It is there on the mercy seat in the presence of God, and it cries out ever continually, Father, forgive them. But we have the need of cleansing as we go. Our feet get dirty. We sin along the way in thought, in word, in deed. And so Jesus instructs with this simple act of the completeness of the work that he does, the blood he's going to shed, how it will completely wash and cleanse his people, but also it will be sufficient for our daily need that we should go and be once again refreshed in in our confession. But Jesus says something else. At the end of this, he says, you are clean, but not all of you. Not all are clean. No doubt you caught what Jesus told Peter. It's, it's interesting. Peter's been, Jesus has been talking to Peter. You, know, you don't have the pronouns. You know I use the good old y'all of the second person plural. Jesus has been talking to Peter, you, singular. But he shifts here in this passage. He says, y'all are clean. He's talking to those in the room. But he says, but not all of y'all are clean. And he's not specific as to the number, but there's at least one person in that room that is not clean. And John then supplies an explanation. Writing years later, John says, For he, that is Christ, knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, Y'all are not all clean. Judas was in the room. Judas had no part in the Savior. The blood of Christ did not cover Judas. He was not washed and cleansed. He had rejected Jesus. This is a sober thing to think about. Judas had heard all the teachings and the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas had seen the miracles. He had stood beside the tomb of Lazarus when the stone was rolled back. He smelled the stench of death. And then he hears the command of Christ telling him to come forth. And he sees Lazarus, a man whom he knew, a man whose home he had been to, come out of that tomb still wrapped in the grave clothes. Judas saw these things. But like one of Paul's companions, Demas, Judas loved this present world. He loved all that was in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, as John writes in 1 John 2, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's Judas. That's where he dwells. Judas is unique. Judas, Jesus was betrayed into the hands of the Jews one time. But there are many like him today. If Judas was with us today, he'd be a member of the local church. He'd be baptized. He'd come to the Lord's table. He eats the institution. He might well be the treasurer or the deacon or an elder or even a minister. Remember, Judas was sent out with the twelve, two by two. And went forth with authority from Christ. And they were preaching and casting out demons and healing the sick. Judas was one of those. What comes to mind is the words of Christ. In Matthew 7, 
Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, that is the great day of judgment, Lord, Lord, we have, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done money and wonders in your name? This is Judas' testimony, but indeed others as well. Jesus continues to speak, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not in me not washed by my blood and you have no part in me and it will continue depart from me I, you who practice lawlessness we see a contrast with Peter and Judas don't we Peter's washed Jesus told him that but he still needed his feet washed Peter's going to need cleansing Peter's going to that very night deny Christ three times Judas has already betrayed Christ Peter will repent Godly sorrow and great weeping. Judas will go out and hang himself. My friends, do not despair if you are in sin. Run to Christ. He can wash you wholly and completely. Son or daughter of the living God, if you've been living in sin for a season, go to Jesus. He will wash your feet and he will restore you in right relationship with the Father. Let us cry like Peter, not just my feet, but wash my hands and my head. Yes, Lord, wash me with your blood so that I'll be whiter than snow. Christ came into the world for this purpose. He came to save sinners. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we do marvel and wonder at the grace that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we cannot fully grasp or comprehend the magnitude of the majesty of our Master. Exalted, even now with ten thousands of ten thousands of angels ever singing His praise. The saints who have gone on before around the throat magnifying His name, arrayed in such glory and splendor that the words of men cannot reach and attain to such a description. And yet he stooped and came as a servant. The King of heaven, the servant of all. Lord, we do marvel at these things. And we rejoice, Lord, and may we ever, ever be amazed at your grace. And Lord, may we be stirred up to greater faithfulness and obedience because of the great work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Father, we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit within us to convict us and to keep us, to comfort us and lead us. Lord, do these things in your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.